My name is Sofia Polishchuk. I'm from Lviv, Ukraine, which is a beautiful city in western Ukraine, known for its art and architecture. I currently work for the permanent mission of Ukraine to the United Nations. I'm also the director of the Children of Ukraine Foundation, which is providing grassroots humanitarian aid to orphans, underserved children, and their families in Ukraine. All statements that I make here are in my personal capacity as an informed Ukrainian sharing her insight. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonawala. Uh, Ryan is not able to join us today, but I have Sofia who is joining me. Uh, we're going to be talking a bit about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, Sofia, we really appreciate you joining us here today. Thank you for having me. So, Sofia, can you give us a little bit of background? Uh, you are Ukrainian. Uh, that's something our audience should definitely know. So you have uh, some very deep insights into this conflict. Uh, certainly on the podcast, we've had many American guests, of course, who've been able to talk about this issue, many people who have dealt with the issue. But unfortunately, we haven't been able to get a Ukrainian voice on uh, to d- discuss this conflict. And certainly discussing the conflict from the eyes of the people who are actually experiencing the conflict is something we all need to do. So, Sophia, uh, can you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? Sure. So my name is Sofia Polishchuk. Um, I am from Lviv, Ukraine, which is uh, a city in western Ukraine. I'm currently working for the permanent mission of Ukraine to the United Nations, and I'm also the director of the Children of Ukraine Foundation, which is providing grassroots humanitarian aid to orphans, underserved children, and their families in Ukraine. Awesome. So essentially the office you work in, is that sort of the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN? Is that how it uh, essentially functions? Yes, exactly. Okay. So I, I guess what I can ask you is, what is the state of Ukraine right now? We've been hearing about this conflict for the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, our news stations have been uh, almost following this conflict 24-7. Uh, we've seen, unfortunately, a lot of uh, civilian casualties, but we've seen incredible bravery uh, by the Ukrainian people, by the Ukrainian military uh, in pushing Russia and Russian forces away. But uh, what is the state of Ukraine right now in the war? Like, what what's the outlook like? So militarily, we've really been able to hold our own. I think a lot of analysts at the start of this conflict um, were not expecting Ukraine to um, have so much resistance, to have so much motivation to fight um, for our territory. So it's been 35 days now. We've seen um, terrible, terrible humanitarian suffering. Um, terrible injuries, terrible attacks against uh, critical infrastructure, against civilian infrastructure. Um, But we've been trying to repel um, as much as we can. So is is there a reason for optimism, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, Is it more pessimistic? What's the situation like, I guess, from the vantage point of perhaps your friends and family on the ground? Actually, in recent days, there have been peace negotiations in Istanbul. Um, These were talks between the Russian and Ukrainian delegations. Um, And we saw some 
promising statements come out of that. For example, um, the Russian delegation stated that they would scale back operations near Kiev and Chernihiv. Um, unfortunately, what's happening on the ground does not necessarily match their words, which is something that we have unfortunately experienced a lot with Russia. Um, so we've still been seeing attacks against um, civilian infrastructure. One thing that we've noticed in Ukraine is just our people's unimaginable bravery and unity. We've seen people volunteer for territorial defense groups. These were musicians, artists, athletes, political figures. Anyone and everyone was ready to defend their country. Um, we've also heard reports of, for example, women taking their children to safety in Western countries and then coming back East to fight alongside their brothers and husbands. So we have been seeing the entire country mobilized for this effort. Through the media, I think we've also seen a lot of moments of unimaginable bravery of, for example, uh, a man lifting a landmine with his bare hands while holding a lit cigarette in his mouth. That was a video that circulated for a while. I saw that. That was pretty badass. Yeah, or even <laughs> when Ukrainians defused a bomb, again, with their bare hands and a water bottle. Of farmers mm -hmm. stealing uh, Russian tanks with their tractors. I, I mean, that. how can Putin's army go against this, this will to survive, this will to protect their soil? Um, and those who were not on the front line still found ways to help. So uh, grandmas baking vareneke for troops, regular people learning to make Molotov cocktails, uh, throwing jars of pickled mm -hmm. tomatoes at drones. Everyone has felt as though it is their duty to defend their territory. And this is not just in Ukraine itself. Ukraine has a strong diaspora of almost 2 million people. And the drive of this diaspora has also been absolutely astounding. Whether it be shipping humanitarian aid, gathering bulletproof vests for territorial brigades, um, fundraising for the army, lobbying members of Congress, uh, protesting in the streets, the Ukrainian diaspora will not let the world forget about what is going on in Ukraine, no matter how long this war drags out. And of course, um, our very own uh, media star, President Zelensky, um, Ukraine could not have found a better leader to rally international support, to motivate troops and to stand by our, our country. Um, so President Zelensky still stands strong and leading his country into victory. Absolutely. And I mean, when you sort of look at the morale on both sides, right, as you just described, it's it's almost as if it's 100 percent of Ukrainians are really rising up both in Ukraine and across the world uh, to, to support these efforts, to support to support their sovereignty, to to defend against these invaders. And you see these Russian troops. And of course, in America, we've always been talking about the Russian military. We got to. Uh, be prepared in case there's ever a conflict with Russia. Uh, the Russian military is tough and all of that. And what you're seeing on the ground right now, it's 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 crazy. They, these some of these troops don't even know why they're in Ukraine. 
from what I've heard, there are many Russians who have relatives in Ukraine. Uh, Russian casualties probably exceed American casualties in the uh, wars in the Middle East over the past 20 years. And exactly. th- there's, there's just no morale. And these Russian generals are dropping like flies in all honesty. I mean, I don't even know the last time the United States lost a general in combat, but uh, it, it's sort of stunning to just see, I mean, one, the incompetence of the Russian army, but also, I mean, it's it's sort of unfortunate, as you said, many analysts weren't expecting this Ukrainian resistance to be so strong. I mean, it's inspiring to see. It's It's inspiring to see because I feel like so many of us uh, who love to talk about foreign policy are very accustomed to bad news these days. Uh, and uh, it, it truly is inspiring. It truly is inspiring. And watching the pres- President Zelensky, uh, I mean, really exhibit such bravery and frame this conflict in such an incredible way, I think. I mean, it's just inspiring in all honesty. Yes, it definitely is. And just to speak with uh, some numbers, um, I saw some uh, the Security Council meeting last night with Ambassador Kislytia, who is the permanent representative of Ukraine to the United Nations. And he mm-hmm. stated that 17,000 Russian military personnel lost their lives in, in 35 days. 17,000, that is an insane number, seven Russian generals. And I mean, Russia has not even been able to take any major cities. That is incredibly significant. What was supposed to be a quick three-day in-and-out operation has now lasted 35 days without any major victories. Well, in one of those abandoned tanks, uh, as you might have read, actually, there were, I think, ceremonial uniforms that some of these uh, Russian soldiers were planning on wearing when they had taken Kiev, and they had anticipated wearing it within two or three days. And well, guess what? The uniforms abandoned in the tank. <laughs> uniforms abandoned in the tank, and where are the troops? They've gone home, or they're <laughs> prisoners of war. And even the folks who I think just actually got returned in a prisoner swap uh, from the island where they said, Russian military, go F yourself. Uh, I mean, they're. I mean, it's 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 an incredible it's an incredible people, honestly. It's it's an incredible people. But uh, Sophia, you see, you mentioned the uh, the negotiations that are going on uh, in Istanbul, and I mean, personally, I'm not sure how to look at these negotiations. Whether there is reason to be optimistic, but when you're looking at what's happening in Istanbul. Uh, what is Ukraine asking for uh, at these negotiations? So first and foremost, we want security guarantees. This is to ensure that the mistakes of the Budapest memorandum are not repeated. Um, A quick tangent for those who are not familiar with the Budapest memorandum, Ukraine relinquished control of its nuclear arsenal in 1994 in exchange for Uh, security assurances in the case that Ukraine's territorial integrity or sovereignty were threatened. This agreement was signed by the United States, the United Kingdom, and Russia. 
Um, fast forward to 2014 when Russia legally annexed Crimea and again in 22 with 22 with the current invasion, these assurances were not fulfilled with direct military intervention. So we're basically asking for guarantees that are stronger than NATO's Article 5, the correct collective defense clause, which treats an attack against one member as an attack against all members. Um, we want this to be backed up by guarantors who, in the event of military aggression, would respond by sending troops to the ground, supplying weapons and enforcing a no-fly zone. Um, next, on the status of Crimea, we propose bilateral discussions over a 15-year period. And on Donbass, we propose direct Zelensky-Putin negotiations. Um, we're also looking for uh, secure humanitarian corridors for the safe passage of civilians, a ceasefire, and respect for the rules and customs of war. So now uh, you did mention direct talks between Zelensky and Putin uh, regarding the Donbass and the bilateral discussions for 15 years on the Crimea. Uh, with regards to that, what is Ukraine actually willing to concede? Um, so that's a good question. Um, so first off, we have made some get concessions during these negotiations. First on neutrality, we are willing to forego NATO membership and agree not to host any foreign military base on our soil. And if we remember, NATO membership was a major reason why Putin and his regime launched a military operation in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine's non-nuclear status is also up for question. So we are, we are willing not to develop nuclear weapons, thereby comforting Russia's claimed security concerns. Um, but ultimately, in, in terms of territory, I think that it's very clear that the Ukrainian people are not willing to give up territory. Um, what we have been seeing from people on the ground, what they've been saying, that we will fight for every last inch of our territory to protect our people. Um, we have faced this aggressor for many centuries. and. Um, we just want to secure an independent Ukrainian statehood and make sure that history does not repeat itself again. So when it comes to not giving up any inch of territory, does that apply to Crimea? Does that apply to the Donbass? Absolutely. It absolutely um, applies to Crimea and Donbass. I think um, another complicating factor of these negotiations is that anything um, anything that is agreed upon would have to be voted on by the people through a national referendum. Um, this is, of course, logistically uh, very diff difficult considering the current situation because so many people have fled Ukraine or are internally displaced. Um, but it is likely from what we're seeing on the ground that uh, territory, giving up territory is a hard no for them. And, and again, this is what the Ukrainian government has said as of today, March 30th. Yes. Yes, the, the Ukrainian government has um, proposed the uh, negotiations on the status of Crimea and the Zelensky-Putin negotiations. Okay, so what have Russia's reactions been to this? So uh, Russia's on-screen reactions have not been entirely negative. In fact, 
um, on the screen. <laughs> exactly. One of the head negotiators uh, from the Russian delegation called these uh, discussions constructive. So that's, I guess, a positive sign um, in some way. Uh, um, it was also revealed that Russia is not opposed to Ukraine's accession into the European Union, so long as Ukraine remains militarily neutral. Um, Russia is also no longer pushing for Ukraine's denazification. Um, but one of the most promising statements that we've seen come out of these talks um, are claims that Russia will scale back military operations in Kiev and Chernihiv. Well, first of all, what is this malarkey about denazification? <laughs> Putin keeps talking about Nazis and stuff, and the president is Jewish. And <laughs> exactly. And he's killing Holocaust survivors. So what is this nonsense about <laughs> Nazis? Exactly. This is just uh, Russian propaganda that they've been spewing for decades. Um and there have been striking, interestingly, very striking comparisons of uh, Russia itself as fascist. So, uh, I mean, it's hard to believe that Ukraine, a democratic country with a democratically elected Jewish leader, can be <laughs> can be led by Nazis, but. Um, that's how their propaganda works. So what is Ukraine's reaction now to what you just told me about uh, Russia's reactions uh, to this negotiation? How is Ukraine reacting to Russia's reactions and what they have called, and the fact that they have called some of these talks somewhat constructive? So um, it is important to proceed any of these discussions with a statement about Russia's long history of saying one thing and then turning around and doing another. So what a lot of people have been saying is just, we'll believe it when we see it. Um, again, I already mentioned this morning, we were seeing reports of significant shelling around Kiev and Chernihiv. Mm -hmm. um, uh, nonetheless, uh, Russia's presence at the negotiating table, I think, also sends an important message because at the beginning of the invasion, Putin claimed that uh, negotiation is impossible with a bunch of, quote, uh, drug addicts and neo-Nazis. So there's that theme again. Um, these were his words to describe the Ukrainian people. So, so yesterday when Russia announced um, scaling back of operations. This was more of a reflection of Ukraine's victories on the ground rather than any rationality or desire for diplomatic solutions on the part of Putin's regime. Yeah, and, and, and certainly, obviously, because, again, I mean, many analysts have believed for a while since the fall of the Soviet Union that Russia has essentially been a power in decline, it, that it's a declining power. And perhaps this invasion of Ukraine was a way in which Russia could bolster its power on the world stage. And yet they're sustaining heavy losses. Uh, as you said, 17,000 soldiers have been killed, according to Ukrainian sources, of course. Mm -hmm. And they haven't been able to take these major cities. Uh, they haven't been able to take Kiev. Uh, 
and I mean, some soldiers, according to some reports, have dropped their guns and run, or some of them are disowning Russia, right? So it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing if you're claiming to be this massive military power. And it seems that a lot of Russia's strength comes from air support, which is certainly why uh, President Zelensky has really asked the world to close off uh, Ukrainian airspace. Uh, but on the ground, it seems like it's a totally different story. What are your thoughts on, I guess, uh, closing Ukrainian airspace? Is that still something that the Ukrainian government wants? Is it, is it something that they believe that they can get? I think that the no-fly zone is not only necessary for the Ukrainian government, for Ukrainian statehood, but it's necessary to protect the lives of civilians. Every day, these bombs are being dropped on our cities. People are dying. And at this point, who knows where Russia will stop? Um, some of these areas that have been targeted are mere kilometers from NATO territory. And Putin has been on record saying that um, other countries, other NATO countries are... Um, show a similar threat to Ukraine. So it's only a matter of time that a dictator such as Putin crosses that line. And um, that time is needed to say, save these civilian lives. Every second counts and it needs to be done as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, certainly we've seen a lot in the West uh, talk about how they don't want to necessarily impose a no-fly zone because they're afraid that they'll get into a shooting war with Vladimir Putin and then it'll escalate into something you don't want. But you had to understand from the Ukrainian perspective, people are dying. There are many civilians dying. Uh, and while with regards to the Burn Bag podcast, we don't necessarily want to express our views on uh, what should be going on, you have to understand that there is a desperation amongst the people of Ukraine to desire these no-fly zones because people are dying. There's a lot of civilians dying and these Russian soldiers, many of these devils, essentially, as I've referred to them before, they've bombed a children's hospital. They bombed a shelter and it was written that there were children inside the shelter and they bombed it anyway. Uh, they're brazenly committing war crimes from the air from the air. So you had to understand a desperation within many Ukrainians to desire these no-fly zones, I think. So, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, now when we sort of take it to Vladimir Putin, as we've mentioned before, Many in the Russian government might have anticipated that this would have just been a roll through. They would have gone in two, three days. They would have had the victory parade and, and that would have been it. But why do you think Putin did not expect Ukrainian unity, uh, motivation to really be strong together and all this support? Why did he not expect this? I think that Putin fell victim to his own propaganda. Um, for years now, he has been saying that Ukraine is a lesser version of Russia, that Ukrainians are undeserving of their own statehood. 
Um, and so when you go into a military operation, especially one that you plan to last three days and already have the celebration uniforms of, it's, it's kind of unfathomable that a country um, is willing to put up so much resistance. But this country has been through so much history, so much oppression, so much occupation that they have they have formed such a strong resolve. And now more than ever, we see this, we see this on our own screens in the news, on the media, and and now now he's clearly knows the motivation of Ukrainians. So what does Ukraine want to see from the West? We've heard, we've talked a bit about the no-fly zones, but what else is does Ukraine want from the United States, from Britain, from France, from Germany, from the European Union and other uh, parties? So I think that um, weapons, uh, first and foremost, weapons supplied by the West have been and will continue to be decisive for Ukraine's survival and victory. Um, just a few days ago at the NATO summit, uh, President Zelensky asked for only 1% of tanks and 1% of aircraft from NATO. Um, and we need, the, we need these ammunition and these systems to take back our land and to chase our enemies from our soil, not just defensive weapons, but also offensive. Um, we also need continued sanctions. What we have seen over the last month is unprecedented. We appreciate this, but we need more. We need complete energy independence, a full embargo on oil and natural gas so that European cities do not fuel the murder of innocent Ukrainians. And we must be sure that any diplomatic agreement that is signed is not immediately followed by lifting of sanctions. We have seen Russia break too many agreements um, in the past to be fooled by just its words. And we also need the West not to forget about us. Um, we don't know how long this war will last. It is important that our international community does not stop advocating for our lives, um, that you do not stop sending us help, and that the atrocities, the war crimes that Russia commits every single day do not fall from media headlines. Um, we will continue to fight until the last day, but we need your help. We need your support. So... Sophia, can you tell us a bit about uh, the humanitarian situation uh, on the ground in Ukraine, the refugee situation, and so on? Sure. So um, what we have been seeing on the humanitarian front is heartbreaking. The latest numbers I saw this morning from the UN Human Rights Mission in Ukraine um, recorded over 3,000 civilian casualties. Uh, these numbers are likely significantly higher. For example, two days ago, the mayor, mayor of Mariupol recorded 5,000 deaths in that city alone. So it's really hard to pinpoint um, exactly how many people have fallen victim to this war. Um, what breaks my heart is what we have been seeing with children. Again, according to Human Rights Watch, um, 
145 children have been killed. Um, kids have to live with this trauma for the rest of their lives with amputations, with the images of their mothers being burned alive. Children should never have to live like this. They should never be targeted. They should never be in the line of fire. Um, yet credible reports show, as you mentioned before, missiles aimed at children's hospitals, at maternity hospitals, at the Mariupol theater, which was clearly marked with the Russian words for children. I've seen videos of mothers and children trying to flee to safety, walking with white flags in their hands, trying to show that they are not a threat, they are not armed, and they still came under fire. This morning, I saw a report showing missiles targeting a building with a clear picture of a red cross. The enormous red cross on a white background could not have been missed. And these are just some of the attacks on civilian infrastructure, on apartment buildings, on schools, on shopping centers, on health infrastructure. All are meant to break the will of the people. But again, this will not break us. We will continue fighting. We will continue defending. We will return to our cities and rebuild them. We will raise our children in a free country where they can think what they want, where they can write what they want. This is something that Vladimir Putin cannot understand, and this is why we will win this war. So on the topic of the humanitarian crisis, on the topic of how one can help, uh, you mentioned an organization that you're involved with uh, at the top of this podcast. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So um, I'm the director of the Children of Ukraine Foundation. I started this foundation in 2020 to assist those who were not reached by larger international organizations. Um, Russia's February invasion created a larger need for our mission. We have been working with orphanages and grassroots organizations to provide large scale emergency relief. Over the last month, we have shipped over 2.5 tons of humanitarian aid along with significant financial aid. And our work is just beginning. We're putting together another few tons to be shipped out in the coming days. And we're doing everything that we can to support our children in Ukraine. Awesome. And again, the website was? It's childrenofukraine.com. Childrenofukraine.com. And folks, you should visit that website and uh, see how you can help and so on. Uh, Sophia, are, are, is there anything else you want to discuss, perhaps that we didn't get to in the session? Um, I think we covered a f uh, good points. Just please, everyone, keep sharing information, keep talking about what's going on, keep um, advocating for um, civilian life, because that's one of the most important things that you can do in this situation. Absolutely. You heard it here, folks. Uh, Sophia, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on The Burn Bag. Uh, we certainly hope to have you on again sometime soon. Uh, and, and God bless you. God bless your family. God bless your friends and God bless your countrymen and women uh, in Ukraine right now. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We really do. Thank you so much for having me.